If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the last book, the book of Revelation, and to the last chapter of that last book, Revelation chapter 22. As we end this year together, I, um, I thought about uh, where we're at and the, and the reality that probably we're going to have kind of a, um, for lack of a better term, a orphan sermon, one that would stand apart by itself. And uh, I had thought a lot about what, what we might like to end the year on, what would be helpful. And I know at least for me, it would be setting my mind and my heart on the glory of Christ in the gospel. And so as I thought about that, I, I became mindful of Jesus' words in Revelation 22 and um, if you've not read this book before, it is, it is an entire book meant to reveal, that's the title, Revelation, to reveal or unveil the glory of Christ. And at the end of that book, all of this seeking to point us to Jesus and the, the, the glory of Him, not just as humble Savior, but also as conquering King. One day He will vanquish all sin and evil. We find some final words of comfort that He gives to John the Apostle and by extension to us today. In verse 13 specifically, he says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, most of you probably know the New Testament was not originally written in English. We have uh, some great and uh, scholarly men and women to thank for having uh, this book in our own language. It was originally written in Greek. And so in Greek, the first letter of the alphabet is Alpha. And the last letter is Omega, respectively translated A and O for us into English. And so when Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, if he were speaking today to us, he might say, I am the A and the Z. Now, if we today talk about the, A's, the ABCs of something, we're usually talking about the basics of that subject or their idea. We're talking about kind of the foundational things. But if we were to say the A to Z of something, what we're meaning is, is a completeness of it. Uh, you're getting all of it. And, and we get that not just from English, but actually from the way the alphabet was used in the Greek language as well. When they talked about the alpha to the omega, they're not just talking about the first letter and the last letter. They're talking about everything that comes in between. They're talking about something complete, something full, and something finished. So Jesus here is saying, I'm everything. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, and everything in between. And that applies to him not just as Savior, but as the, the, the main subject and character of all the Scriptures, as the fullness of God's revelation of himself. And so this morning, as we end and are thinking about uh, focusing on the glory of Christ and the gospel, this is what I want us to see, how Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega of, and everything in between when it comes to the message of the gospel. That message of good news about how human beings, those sinful, can come to know and be known by a holy God. And so this morning, as it were, we want to look at a gospel alphabet, the gospel from A to Z. And as we, we do that, uh, our sermon is obviously going to look a little bit different if you've glanced at the sermon notes already. Um, usually we, take our, we make our way through books of the Bible, at least through a specific passage of Scripture, and there's lots of good reasons for that. And we don't have time to give all of them this morning, but, but quite frankly, the, the simplest reason why that's a good idea is because that's how the Bible has come to us. 
It's not a magic eight ball where we just kind of shake up the Bible and throw it open and what do you have to say to me today? No, uh, each book has its own collection of words that make sentences, that make paragraphs, that make themes. God delivered us t- to us the Bible in the way it is and so we want to systematically see why did God give it to us that way. We want to, to unpack that. Secondly, because going passage by passage through a book is the easiest way to make sure we get the text right in terms of what it says and what it means for us. If we just pick a random topic and begin uh, pulling verses from all over the Bible and throwing it at that, we're much more likely to make a mistake and actually distort the message on the Bible on that given topic. And so this morning, as we think about the, the multifaceted glory of the Bible from A to Z, what we have are not just a kind of smattering of verses thrown together. Really what you have in 26 letters is 26 mini sermons, all rooted in one text of Scripture showing us in some way the glory of Christ in the gospel. And so that's what we want to see this morning. And, I, and, and hearing 26 sermons, it will not be as long as hopefully that sounds or you might be uh, wondering about, all right? Well, as I heard somewhere, it's always good to begin at the beginning. So let's begin by learning that A is for assurance. A is for assurance. This is what we all want in life, assurance, which here means the guarantee of hope. In this life, we often want to be assured of the fact that we are loved, that we will have a job, some source of income that we'll be taken care of. But more importantly, when it comes to God, we want assurance that He will welcome us and not reject us. We need the assurance that we will be acceptable to Him, that our, our sins will be dealt with and forgiven. We want the guarantee of salvation's hope, and the gospel alone can give us that assurance. And so in Hebrews 10, we're told that's because of the saving work in Jesus that we can draw near to God in full assurance of faith. But where do, we, where do we hear clearly about the gospel? Where do we learn about the gospel? We might have this assurance. Here we see that B is for Bible. B is for Bible. Although I think he was wrong about many things, well, actually when it comes to the gospel, there was a man named Erasmus who had the right idea about books. He once wrote this, when I get a little money, I buy books. And if any is left, I buy food and clothes. My family can attest to you that that's likely how I would live if I was a bachelor, but I have other people to pay for and take care of, so I can't do that. But I love all kinds of books. I love fiction, I love poetry, I love history, I love theology, but as much as I love those books, there is one book that I should love more than any other because that book, the Bible, is unlike any other book. The Bible's a collection, actually, of 66 individual books. I blew one of my kids' minds with that the other day. It's, uh, it's a book. I said, no, no, it's, it's not one book. It's a collection of books, 66 different ones, written by over 40 different authors on three different continents across thousands of years. Contains stories of war, of worship, of love, and of loss. It has history and songs and sermons and explanations for all kinds of subjects, some that you would be embarrassed to even talk to your kids about. But here's what sets the Bible apart from all of the uniqueness of its composition and clarity across those 66 books. It's all true. It's all true. You find me any other book ever printed, and I guarantee you, we will find a fault with it. We will find something where the author got it wrong, either because new research has come out or because they just had a bias going into it. Whatever it is, there will be a flaw with that book, but Even the best of books are simply written by human beings, but the Bible is a book written by God. Now, it is true that the Bible was written down by human men, but it is God who gave them the words to write down. How do we know that? Because the Apostle Peter says that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's interpretation. No one makes it up. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we know the Bible is all true because it comes from God who cannot lie, but always speaks truthfully. That's where we hear about Jesus in the gospel. In fact, the Bible says that it is all about Christ. Jesus himself said that in John 5. Jesus said, the scriptures bear witness about me. That's why C is for Christ. C is for Christ. Christ is the focus of all that God does in history, all that he does throughout his scriptures. One of my favorite books in the Bible, if I'm allowed to have a favorite book of the Bible, it's all God's word, right? Although we're probably not tempted to read Lamentations devotionally as much as some other books. If you've read Lamentations, you'll get that joke. If not, read it this afternoon. One of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Hebrews, and one of my favorite passages in that book is at the very beginning. The author says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He, the Son, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the majesty on high. God, we were told here, has spoke to His people in many different ways throughout history, many different prophets, and that's why the Bible is so big and so diverse in, in how it's, it's composed. But God makes clear the big plan, the big point, by speaking perfectly through His Son, Jesus Christ, who was the final perfect word from God that brought together all the other words. What was that word that Jesus spoke? It was the gospel. As Martin Luther says, that, that word above all earthly powers. Christ was able to give that word because he's more than just a good man. He's more than just like any other prophet. Christ was and is forever and will be God the Son. Not just God's Son, but God the Son. Christ shows us what God the Father is like. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And what was the word of the gospel that he came to give? It was that purification of sins had been made. That, that, that we could be cleansed from our sins. How did that happen? Well, it was through the work of Christ by his death. That's what D is. D is for death. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came, the people of Israel would go to the temple once a year on the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest in Israel would have two goats before him. And, and the, the one goat, uh, they actually uh, cast lots to see what goat would take what part. One of them, though, uh, the high priest would place his hands on the head of that goat and he would confess the sins of Israel over that goat. Now, I have no idea what that was like. I mean, how long that took. Is he being specific? Is he being uh, summarizing? But he would put his hands on the head of that goat, transferring symbolically the guilt of Israel's sins to that goat. And that goat would then be led outside of the camp into the wilderness. It would be run off. And the point was that the, the guilt of Israel was expiated. It was, it was purged. It was sent out from the camp. But then there was the other goat. And this goat, this goat was actually taken and its throat was cut. It was slaughtered. And, and the blood that came forth was sprinkled onto the mercy seat in the 
Ark of the Covenant in the heart of the temple. And there it was to show that the guilt was not just removed, but that atonement had been made. Wrath was satisfied, that Israel was being cleansed for their sins. And on it went year after year after year. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled the role of both goats. Both offerings were pointing towards Jesus and his death on the cross. Just as those animals were substitutes for the people of Israel before God, so Jesus was a substitute for his people before God. He would die as an offering for sin that we might both be cleansed and have our guilt removed. So this is why the book of Hebrews says that Jesus suffered outside the camp to sanctify or to cleanse the people through his own blood. He did not offer the blood of an animal but his own blood to secure an eternal redemption. There's no more need for sacrifices over and over again. One death brought full redemption. And that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. There he became a curse for us, according to Paul in Galatians 3, and died that we might have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Colossians 1. Thus, Jesus' death brings life. Specifically, though, it brings eternal life. So in our gospel, alphabet E is for eternal life. Eternal life. In John 6, Jesus says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus promised to give people life forever. When we die, He will cause us to live again. But how can He do that if He Himself is dead? Well, this is another important part of the gospel message. Namely, Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose back to life. Paul says that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And we know now that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So because Jesus conquered death through death, he, he died only to achieve victory over it, coming back to life forever. We have assurance, not only that he, that he is a powerful Savior, but just as He rose from the dead, we also will one day rise from the dead in order to live forever with God. But how can that be ours? How can that work, that saving work of Jesus come to us? We know almost instinctively, but clearly from the Bible, not everyone is saved. Not everyone receives that work of Christ. Well, the Bible tells us that this gospel becomes good news to us when we respond in two ways. And here we see two letters coming together very clearly and often in the Bible, namely that F is for faith and G is for grace. F is for faith and G is for grace. That's how we receive the gospel offered to us by God. Many people want to work for their salvation. They think, I, I need to be good and then God will accept me. But the Bible says, no, that's not the way it works. Jesus was the one who was good for you. And he gives us the assurance that we are accepted not because of what we do or who we are, but despite of what we've done and who we are. We are accepted because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Forgiveness comes as a gift, a gift that we do not earn, and that is what grace means, receiving something that shouldn't be ours. And we receive that when we trust God to give it to us. That is what faith means, trusting God to keep his promise. So God says, you look to my son, you trust him, you believe in him, you will be saved. And we say, I believe that promise, and I will look to your son, Jesus, and God will save us.
And Paul, of course, brings these together in Ephesians 2 when he says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, though living differently is not required to be saved, once we are saved, God expects that we'll live differently. This is why H is for holiness. H is for holiness. God is at work in our lives, pushing us to put sin to death by His grace, setting us apart more and more from this sinful world around us to be a a, a people for Himself, and we are called to cooperate with God in that process. In other words, we ourselves are to seek to be holy, even as God is working in us to achieve that. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, We're told, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, think really clearly and regularly about the gospel and what has been promised to you there, that salvation will be yours when Jesus returns. Then what do we do in the next verse? Set your mind on the gospel, then as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also shall be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So you notice that the order is important for Peter. You remember what you have and who you are in Jesus, and from there, from that grace, that mercy, that change, that new identity, that's how you pursue holiness. It's not, I'm working to be holy in order to make God accept me. It's, I'm already accepted. Now I'm pursuing holiness. And what does that holiness look like? It looks like the image of Christ. That's what I is. I is for image, which here means the image of Christ. The new life of holiness that God produces within us is not vague. It's not abstract. It's very specific. In Romans 8, we're told that God is changing us to look more and more like Jesus. And you can tell that even look. I mean, I'm looking a lot more like Jesus as my beard is growing in even more. No, that's not what it means, right? Come on, that was at least worth something. Did I put you all asleep here? So, all right. He groans. That's okay. You're allowed to groan if it's one of those, okay? No, it, it's, the, it's the internal righteous character of Jesus that he is conforming us to. In fact, we are told, sometimes, sometimes we, we misunderstand what this verse means, but we're told actually that God is working all things together for what? For good according to his purpose. But what is that purpose? Sometimes we think that purpose is for us to be healthy and wealthy and happy all the time and no problems in this life, and that's the opposite. That's not the purpose. The next verse tells us the purpose. The purpose is so that we can be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, sometimes people think about being a holy Christian as something that is serious and dour. That the more godly you are, the more... Uh, the more the more your face kind of hangs and your, and your eyebrows are sharp and you just, boy, that guy's serious. He must be really holy. But the Bible is clear that, that though holiness is something to be taken seriously, the gospel brings joy. J is for joy. It's for joy. Joy is not a virtue, but an attitude that God produces within us. And joy is more than just happiness. You see, being happy or sad is dependent on our circumstances. I lose my puppy. I'm sad. 
I find my puppy, I'm happy. But joy runs deeper than that. Joy is not dependent on what is happening around us, but what has already happened for us, namely that God has saved us in Christ. So Paul says that Christians rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means even in bad circumstances, even when I lose the puppy, I might be sad, but I can still be joyful. If you've ever seen the old film based on the novel The Robe, you'll remember that that scene where the Roman centurion named Marcellus is is mystified as he sees this crippled woman playing a lyre and and singing praises to God. He just doesn't get it. And someone says, oh, when she was 15 years old, this, this, this woman became sick and became paralyzed. And for a while she was very bitter, but then she met Christ. And now she is a joyful woman. And Marcellus Still didn't get it. He says, I don't understand. Jesus is supposed to be uh, the, 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 this powerful person, and yet, and yet he, she's, still, she's still paralyzed. She can't walk. If he had such great power, why didn't he cure her? And the man explained, he did cure her. He cured her of her bitterness. He cured her of her sin. A far more important, powerful, and deep cure than just the paralysis of her body. This is why even though she could not walk, she was full of joy. Part of why we can be joyful as God makes us holy is that the gospel reminds us that now that we are in Christ, this home is not our world. And so K is for kingdom. K is for kingdom. Paul says in Colossians 1 that when God saved us, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. One of the movies that that I enjoy watching is the Lord of the Rings series, and there's a lot more in the books than there are in the movies. And in fact, if you read the book, The Fellowship of the Ring, you see as Frodo and the other hobbits are beginning their adventure, they're walking away from the Shire, their home, singing, home is behind and the world ahead. And all throughout the book, as well as in the movies, they're always talking about going home to the Shire, going home to the Shire, leaving all this insanity and war and going back home. But for Christians, the gospel says actually that's reversed. Home is not behind us. Home is ahead of us. Because our home is not in this world. Our home is not in the attachments of these things, even from great and glorious gifts and comforts of family and friends, but rather our our citizenship is in Christ's kingdom that is yet to come. And so as God's people, we look forward, not back. Our greatest comforts come from thinking of what lies ahead with Jesus, not of anything in this world. Why should we want to be with him though? Why would the thought of being with Christ in his kingdom cause us to be joyful even in the midst of pain? What what draws us in? Because of this simple fact, the gospel tells us L is for love. L is for love. The Apostle John says that God is love. God is love and that, as we heard earlier, the love of God was made manifest among us in this, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Do you ever doubt that God loves you? Do circumstances in this life ever, ever so beat you up and weigh you down that you think, how could God love me? Remember He sent His own Son to die for you. That's how we are assured of God's love, His 
benevolence and his sacrifice for us. He allowed his son to be killed for you. And now from the fullness of that love, we also can love in sacrificial ways. God sacrificed for us in love, and now we can sacrifice for him and for others. In fact, it's this great love for us that actually enables us to love those around us. John will go on to say that in that same chapter, 1 John 4, that we are able to love because God first loved us. You talk to my kids, and one of the, one of the problems I have is pouring my pop too quickly. And they get a little bit of a, a, a snicker out of watching it go over and, and me trying to go get the foam as before it goes all over the, 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 the table. But, but the next time someone pours pot, they say, oh, it's a mess. They say, no, 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 don't worry about it. Just be reminded of the fullness of God's love. And they'll say, what? But, but this is what the Bible portrays, that just as he is pouring this overflowing love, this, this amazing, magnificent love into our lives, so it is meant to flow up out of us, not only back towards God, but towards one another. You think about the, the command that Jesus says, he says, look, if you're going to do two things and, and keep all of God's commands, here's the two things. Love God with everything that you are, all of your being, your mind, heart, soul, and strength, everything, then love your neighbor as yourself. We say, okay, we got it. No, you don't. How are you going to do that? I mean, that's like impossible commands. Except for the fact that the love of God is within us. He's poured out his love into our hearts so that we are able to love him the way he should be loved. We are to love others the way that he wants us to love them. And it's from the fullness of that love for God and others that we can joyfully strive together with Christ on his mission. This is what we see in M. M is for mission. When we realize what God has done for us, how much mercy he has shown us in Jesus, we will naturally want to tell other people about that. And that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. When he saves us, he calls us to be his disciples and to help others become his disciples. That's our mission, to tell people about the gospel of Christ in order that they might also believe. And so, of course, in Matthew 28, Jesus clearly says now that he has died as the sacrifice for sins and he's been raised to the Lord of all things, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's our mission. Where does it take us? Well, it starts right where we're at. Think about our friends at school, the family that we have visited at the holidays. That mission of gospel advance, of disciple making, it, it just should be woven naturally into the relationships in our life. That's where it starts, but that's not where it stops. Jesus' own words in this verse show us that in is for nations. In is for nations, which here means all the peoples of the world. Our mission is about more than just where we can go in a day or a few hours. It's about taking the gospel to the whole world, to go and to keep going until every last people group has a gospel witness. Now, we know that not everyone can go to the nations. Uh, number one, not everybody's called, but, but physically not everyone can go, which is why they're not called. 
But everyone can have a part in the going. Everybody can have a part in the sending. Everybody can have a part in the mission that goes to the nations. Even the youngest of the people with us today. Some of you young people, you came and you brought pennies and you dropped them in these jars. Guess what that's doing? That's help paying for other people to go to the nations and tell them about Jesus. Anytime you put money in the plate, a part of that goes to support people who are taking the gospel to the nations. But you can also do more than that. You can also do the more that you can also pray. Jesus said that all of us ought to pray earnestly for God to send labors into the harvest field. Now, practically speaking, there's a lot of different ways you can do that. Even as, again, little kids here, talking to you young people, pester your parents until they print you off or buy you a world map. And then tonight, start with the state of Alaska, then move on to Canada or go north, go into Greenland, Iceland, whatever you want to do, but just start with a country and pray for the people there. Pray that they would hear the gospel and they would believe and that if they need more workers, God would send them. But if you're a little bit older or maybe a little bit more uh, into that, uh, then buy a book like Operation World, which will take you country by country by country throughout the entire year telling you uh, what is actually happening in terms of the gospel uh, in those countries. Or if you're more of an on-the-go type person, more of a tech guy, download the Joshua Project app. It doesn't go by country, it actually goes by people group. So every day you've got a different people group and it tells you in about three minutes, all of the, the most important stats about the unreached peoples that are out there and how you can pray for them. If you're just really lazy, open up the bulletin each Sunday and look under global prayer and there you have one of those people groups from the Joshua Project highlighted every single week. All right, So at least once a week, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest, harvest field. Now, that's not an easy task. It's part of the reason why we need to pray. Going to the nations uh, seems really difficult, uh, particularly where some of these last people groups are at and their hostility towards us. But when we really think about it, any part of the Christian life is difficult, can seem difficult when we think of the hostility of the world around us. But Jesus gives us comfort and encouragement in the face of the worst circumstances. That's why O is for overcome. O is for overcome. In John 16 Christ says, in the world, you will have tribulation. You will have difficulty. You will have suffering. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has the victory, sweet victory, in that he has overcome everything that would stand against us. But even better, those that have put their faith and their hope and their confidence in him by his spirit find their lives united to his. So now he is the one who has overcome the world and so we are able to overcome the world. So the apostle John says in 1 John 5, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So it is our faith in Christ. It is, it is that continual gospel message that gives us victory to overcome the world. And we should remember that we do not overcome the world merely as individuals because P is for people. P is for people, which here means the people of God. The people of God. When we were saved by faith in Christ, the message of the gospel, God brought us together with other disciples as one people. In other words, Christ is building a church through the gospel. He's not just making disciples. Remember that he said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
especially for the Gentiles who were believing. Peter says, you were once not a people, but now you are a people for God. And so God saves us. He brings us together. But how does that happen? I mean, I mean, how do we actually come to have faith in God, to be drawn together, to love one another? Because we know all those things are contrary to us naturally. We're, we're selfish. We're self-interested. We're not loving people. So how does he do that? Well, Q is for quickening. Q is for quickening. Now, that's an odd word we don't use much anymore. In medical terms, it's a word that, that means the moment a pregnant mother first feels the baby beginning to move inside of her womb. It's, the, it's, the, it's about the evidence of new life being inside of her. And it's for that reason that the older past and theologians previously used this term quickening to describe the new birth that God gives to his people through the gospel. This is why we believe Despite being spiritually dead sinners, God makes us alive. And giving us that spiritual life not only allows us to look to Christ, to see his glory and believe, but to now begin living by that faith. So Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise his name. Why? For according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The, the, the quickening we experience, the new birth, allows us to see Christ and to live the way that He wants. And part of that new birth is seen in our sorrow over sin. This is why R is for repentance. R is for repentance. That's what the new birth leads to, a turning away from sin towards God in faith. In fact, that was the very first sermon that Jesus preached in Mark chapter 1. Repent and believe the gospel. And as Christians, we never stop repenting. We never stop believing. That's how we continually live our lives. Repenting and believing. Confessing our sin and trusting Christ to forgive us of our sins. That's how we grow with Him. In fact, that's how it helps us to live better as His children. This is why S is for sonship. S is for sonship. J.I. Packer says this is probably the, the greatest blessing, the greatest source of joy in the gospel message, that we have been made the sons of God. Do you remember 2 Samuel 9? David, you remember, was anointed king over all of Israel, though Saul was still on the throne. But because of his sin and rebellion, his lack of faith in God, the kingdom was torn from him. The spirit of leadership was pulled from him and it was put on David, though he was just a young man. And apart from God's preserving grace, Saul kind of went off the rails. He started acting kind of nuts, specifically towards David, trying to kill him. In fact, not just in the temple courts, or rather in the, in the kingly courts, as he tried to spear him a couple times, but had his armies and he himself chasing him throughout the, the countryside and throughout the wilderness. And yet Saul's son, Jonathan, observed that David was the rightful king and therefore loved David. They were companions. They were brothers. And so when, it, when Saul died in battle, under the judgment of God, and Jonathan died with him. David was installed as king, and he said, I want, I want to, to do something to honor Jonathan. So he called together his, his new advisors. He said, look, is there anybody left from Jonathan's house? Is there anybody that I can show kindness to, to honor my friend Jonathan? And so they went and they found one son, Mephibosheth, that nobody cared anything about, because when he was a young child, he was dropped, and both of his legs were now paralyzed. He couldn't walk. He couldn't do anything. 
In, in that country, there was no such thing as a Disabilities Act. Nobody cared about you if you were disabled. And so here's this, this long-lost son that nobody cares anything about. He's a nobody in society, and David rides out to him. He doesn't just invite him to the palace. He goes towards him. Now, in this context, in this cultural context, when you came to power, the first thing you would do is kill off all the family of the previous king, lest they come after you and challenge your rule on the throne. That's what they would have done in all the other nations. But David rides out, and he finds Mephibosheth, and you have to wonder, did, did he beg for a sword? Did he just think, I got to have something because he's coming to finish this off, to put to death the house of Saul forever? But David comes in and he says, I want to restore to you all of the land of Saul, your father. After he died, who, who knows what, what happened to him? Maybe it went to David. But he says, I want to restore all of that land to you and to your house. More than that, I want you to come and live with me at my palace. In fact, I want you to sit at my table and eat as one of my sons. You know what Mephibosheth's response is? Why are you being so kind to a dead dog like me? Why would you show such grace, such favor? And we know that it's in order to honor Jonathan. But here's the thing. Before God, we are all Mephibosheth. We are God's enemies. We are worthy of his wrath. We are worthy of the slaughter. But he took pity on us. He blessed us. More than that, he called us to be his sons. How? The gospel of Christ. Paul says in Galatians 4 that Christ redeemed us, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, now how could he do this? It's because... God shows the kind of love for a son because he himself is a father who has a son. And this brings us to T. T is for Trinity. T is for Trinity. This is one of the greatest truths revealed in the gospel. There is only one God, but that one God exists eternally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct persons, and yet there is only one God. They say, that's difficult to understand, then you're right. But we should expect no less if we believe God is infinitely glorious as He says He is in the Scripture. At the same time, though it is difficult to grasp, it should not be rejected. That's what some people do. So well, I don't understand the Trinity, so it must not be true. Really? That, that's what you're going with? That's the rationale you want to use for things? No, 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 no. In fact, if you do not have the Trinity, you have a much lesser God. You have a God that cannot love. You have a God that cannot be fully eternal and never changing. See, what if he makes people and chooses to love? Fine, but that means he never loved in the past. Instead, you have this glorious picture of this eternal, beautiful fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's essential to the gospel. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that the Father plans our salvation, that the Son comes at the behest of the Father and wins. He secures our salvation through His life, and then the Spirit applies that salvation to us. In Romans 3, Paul says that the Son appeases the wrath of the Father. Two distinct persons. You don't have the Trinity, you don't have the gospel. More than that, it becomes obvious why Paul can offer a blessing like the one found at the end of 2 Corinthians. Maybe you've heard of it before. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
Now, if we understand the Trinity, then we will be able to understand better why you is for unity. Why you is for unity. In John 17, Jesus prays for all of his disciples. He says, I pray not just for those that are here, but for all who believe through their word. And he prays to God the Father and says, I am praying for them that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. Now think about what he's praying there. The intimate, eternal relationship, loving fellowship between Father, God the Father, God the Son, That's what he wants his people to participate in and so be unified and loving towards one another. How can Christians have that kind of unity? Same loving unity as the Father and the Son, only by the Spirit. In Ephesians 4, he is the one in whom we maintain unity in the bond of peace. How do we experience the fullness of the Spirit's presence, thus enjoying unity as God's people? Remember, He is called the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ. You see, he, again, there is a, a Trinitarianism that runs thick through the New Testament and explains not just how we are saved, but how we live as saved people. It is the Spirit who connects us to Christ and Christ who connects us to the Father. This is why we come to V and have to remember that V is for vine. V is for vine. Spirit, we are told, is the one who unites our life to Christ. Christ is the one who called himself the true vine in John 15. We do not walk by the Spirit. Remember that command from Galatians? Walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I don't want to fulfill the lust of the flesh, so what do I do? I walk by the Spirit, but how do I do that? You do not do that apart from the Word of the Father and the fellowship of the Son. Again, it began and it will continue and end in a Trinitarian way. The branches on any vine will wither and die unless they remain on the vine. Likewise, Jesus says God's people only produce fruit, only grow in righteousness, only enjoy fellowship with the Father if they remain in fellowship with Jesus. And one day that fellowship will be complete. We will be able to gaze into the glorious face of Christ. But until then, W is for waiting. W is for waiting. In Titus 2, Paul says that we live our lives waiting for our blessed hope, the reappearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're busy doing service. We're busy pursuing holiness. We're busy doing all these things. But ultimately, we're doing them in the context of waiting for the return of Christ. He came once and he will come again. But that waiting can be difficult for us, can't it? We are called to be God's people, but sometimes we look more like people of the world instead. And so this is why we need the gospel every day to show us our hearts. And in this way we can say that X is for X-ray. X is for X-ray. I know you thought it was going to be Xerxes, but it's X-ray. You see, I mean, let's just be honest. Our hearts can become cold towards God, can't they? I mean, we can go an entire week and never crack the Bible, never talk to a Christian, never pray, never give any thought to Jesus, and then we hit Sunday and we think, how did that happen? Did I really just go through the week like that? Um, How do I recover? Well, the reality is sin is deceitful. 
It is, it is deceptive and it can trick us. We can think we're doing great when really we're not. But the gospel of Jesus Christ will open up our sin. It will reveal it to us. It will x-ray us, as it were, making evident the love we have for the world that outstrips our love for the Father. And so by reminding ourselves of the gospel, of God's love for sinners like us, sending Christ to save us, the new life that He has called us to and empowers us to live, then like David prayed in Psalm 19, we will be able to say that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart are acceptable in the sight of the Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Having our lives x-rayed by the gospel will allow us to see our sin and repent, telling God we're sorry, but more than that, asking God to help us to better love and trust Him. That, in turn, will help us to better yield to Him. Why is for yield? Here, this means not living for ourselves, but living for God. Because we have been bought by the cost of Christ's own blood, Paul says, remember, you are not your own. So each day, we look to Christ in faith, we open His Word, and we pray like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before He went to the cross, not my will be done, but your will be done. And we do not do that begrudgingly. We don't say, yeah, okay, God, I know, I know. I guess I got to do this. I mean, maybe we should, maybe we have to start there. Obedience is better than nothing. But the yielding that we have that, is, that marks our life should be done with zeal for the Lord's name. This is the final letter of our gospel alphabet. Z is for zeal. As we wait for Jesus' return, seeking to remain in fellowship with Him, following the Spirit's leadership, turning from sin, yielding to the Lordship of our God, we are also to be outward focused. We think about so many of these things involve us as the individual, and yet, and yet we're told in Titus 2 that Christ gave Himself to redeem us in part that we might be zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. That means not just focus on ourselves, but looking to serve others in the church and in the world. That should be close to our heart. It should be something that we strive for, remembering that it will, be, it will bring glory to Christ. When little Charlotte was 10, she lived on a large plantation in Virginia and couldn't imagine anywhere else in the world being more beautiful than where she lived. She loved her life there, and thus was incredibly upset when her cousin Sarah was leaving with her family to be a missionary in Israel. Charlotte just thought Sarah was wasting her life. She should have been out enjoying the courting of nice southern gentlemen, not, not off in Jerusalem. Charlotte thought the Bible was a book of fairy tales, even as she entered college at 18, something unusual for a woman in the South in her day. Going to a revival service one day, she sat in the very front row, winking at her friends, signaling her intention to mock the sermon. But the preacher for this revival series was a man named John Broadus. And he preached the gospel, and Charlotte found herself convicted of her need of Christ. Soon she became a Christian and pouring out, began pouring out her life for Christ in service to him. But then her former life began calling on her. A young and prominent theology professor named Crawford had proposed marriage. They had known each other for a long while. She had been one of the students in one of his classes. He proposed marriage and she accepted. She was hoping, in fact, she wrote to one of her friends for a spring wedding. 
But then as Crawford and her began to talk more and more, it became evident to her that Crawford held beliefs that undermined the gospel that she cherished so much. It brought dishonor, not glory to Christ. And so Charlotte eventually broke off the engagement. And at age 33 was commissioned as a single woman to be a missionary in China where she lived the rest of her life. Charlotte's zeal and gospel work rallied her denomination's love for international missions and helped motivate others to go and many others to give. And even today, Charlotte Moon, known as Lottie to her friends, is remembered for her work with the annual Christmas offering that is taken up by our denomination. Tim Keller is right when he says, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A through Z of the Christian life. If we are Christians, we will never get over the gospel. It should only become sweeter and sweeter to us as we continually plunge the depths of Christ's work for our salvation, causing us to worship God more fully and to serve Him more joyfully. Let's pray toward that end. Father, we are thankful for this gospel alphabet. God, we know that there's lots of of other ways that this alphabet could have been written. This is not an exhaustive study of the gospel but merely scratching the surface, giving us a few insights into the amazing reality of of the salvation we have in your Son. Father, we pray that this would be an encouragement to us. It would be an encouragement to the young people that are here that they might perhaps trust in Christ for the first time to acquire this grace for themselves by faith. But God, for those of us, young or old, that have believed, may we also find ourselves encouraged. May we find ourselves treasuring Christ a little bit more this day and in the weeks to come, reflecting just a little bit more on the gospel that we might be both convicted and comforted by the work you've done through your Son. Father, we pray that as we move into this new year, that it will be as a gospel people mindful of the mercy you have shown us through Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.